Hi, and welcome to the State of Talk podcast, brought to you by the International Society for Conversation Analysis. I'm Elliot Hoy, a researcher at the University of Basel. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Anne Warfield-Rawls, professor of sociology at Bentley University and research professor of socioinformatics at the University of Zeehan. This interview format is just one of the many things that we do on the State of Talk podcast. Some of the larger goals of the publication committee with the new website, the social media presence, and our forum newsletter is to generate discussion, collaboration, and excitement about the interactional discoveries that can only come from our kinds of naturalistic studies. If you have any ideas or would like to participate, please go to conversationanalysis.org and reach out to us. We'd love your input on what we're doing, uh, which is to establish a truly international connection between our EM and CA communities. Anne Rawls has written extensively on EMCA, as well as social theory and the philosophy of language. She's perhaps best known for being the main interpreter and evangelist of Garfinkel's work, being the designated editor of his writings, including Ethnomethodology's program, published in 2002, and Parsons Primer in 2019, but also serving as the director of the Garfinkel Archive at the University of Siegen, which hosts not just all of the writings of Garfinkel, but the voluminous recordings he made from almost every professional interaction he had, starting in the 50s until his death in 2011. I was able to catch Anne to talk about a new and incredibly timely and important anthology of papers that she put together with Waverly Duck and Kevin Whitehead called Black Lives Matter, Ethnomethodological and Conversation Analytic Studies of Race and Systemic Racism in Everyday Interaction. We got to talk about how she got into EMCA and the studies of race, what she thinks of EMCA, what she thinks EMCA work can add distinctively to that field of study, and also about the history of sociology, the challenges of modernity, and even a story about how Garfinkel hitchhiked his way into grad school. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so something that we like to do at the beginning of the podcast is just to ask, how is it that you that you first came to ethnomethodology and conversation analysis? Yeah, well, uh, thank you for asking me to do this, Elliot. When I was coming of age, my parents took me to uh, teach-ins at uh, churches, you know, where people came and talked about race. I was very aware of what was uh, going on, uh, you know, with civil rights protests in the South. And it was very clear to me that uh, you know, this was extremely important stuff. I took it seriously. Mm. Uh, in college, I was a, a single parent. I have a black son who will be 50 this coming year. And I, I discovered that Harvard had a night school for $45 a credit, which huh. I could afford. So mm -hmm. I majored in uh, black and African studies, a sort of a precipitating uh, moment in here um, where I was out visiting my parents and mm -hmm. a neighbor came over and gave me Consumer Reports Family Planning Guide, how you don't have a Black child that nobody wants. Wow. And I believe it was Hernstein's article in The Atlantic on how uh, Black people are uh, genetically inferior in wow. their intelligence. Um, you know, needless to say, I was furious. I was absolutely beside myself. But what I was most struck by was that uh, for all the commitment I had to equality and, mm -hmm. you know, I'd been doing lots of activist things, when I was confronted by this there were so many things I realized I didn't know. I was not equipped 
to argue with a racist about uh, racism, uh, why they were wrong. So I went to the library. I, I started reading African history, Black American history. Mm -hmm. Then I discovered I could enroll at Harvard. So, you know, I spent the next two years reading my way through all of the anthropology books, all the history books. And mm -hmm. having had this background in African history and Black studies, I, I, and, and having spent a lot of time in the Black community, I was struck by how, you know, the psychology I was being told was Eurocentric. This right. is not a description of everybody. It's supposed to be. It's Piaget, it's Freud, but it's not. So mm -hmm. I began to get the idea fairly early on that something really big had to be done to redo, rewrite social theory. Mm -hmm. So so it began there. And mm -hmm. in my first year in college, I was taking courses with Frances Waxler, who is a student of George Sathis, and she was teaching Garfinkel and Goffman. So, you know, I found, I found, I came across their work early, and it was the only work I'd found that I thought at least tried, you know, it, it, these were attempts to talk about uh, uh, how things actually happened. So my my commitment to, you know, studying race started early and right. I came to ethnomethodology and conversation analysis uh, because of that interest. I met mm. both okay. Garfinkel and Sachs in 1975 when they came to teach at BU. I'd mm -hmm. already been writing about ethnomethodology, you know, so so I, I was ready to meet them. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. That yeah, that it, it, it coincided with uh yeah, your budding interest in this in in this area at the at the same time right. that they were invited to come give those right. seminars. Right. You know, and because of my interest in 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 race, it's something that Garfinkel and I always talked about, which I gather didn't happen, you know, with everybody. But that's that's a that's I didn't know this about you. That's a really interesting story. Uh, thank you for for sharing yeah. that. It actually sort of leads me to to point out something. Well, I didn't point it out. You guys pointed it out in in your volume. Something that I really really liked about it um, was that, at, for me at least, um, you know, uh, when people think about ethnomethodology and conversation analysis, they don't think about uh, race studies, racism studies. And in fact, lots of people think the opposite that we right. don't look at race and we don't look at racism. So hearing. Um, from you that, in fact, uh, what drew you to this, uh, to ethnomethodology specifically, um, was its focus um, on race and its ability to deal with race in a way that you found intellectually and, I guess, practically satisfying as well. Yeah, it's one of the reasons, uh, you know, for some of the pieces I've written, because starting uh, right after studies um, and Garfinkel started to get famous, all of the big shots, you know, wanted to take him down. And mm. they would say, yeah, it's, you know, it's trivial. It's apolitical. It's atheoretical. He right. doesn't care right. about anything. And, uh, of course, he did. It, 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 it's obvious, you know, from looking at his early work, and it was obvious to me because I could mm -hmm. see its relationship to the later work. So there's a piece I did uh, uh, in 2018 in the European Journal of Sociology mm -hmm. where um, 
trying to explain how just at the point where Garfinkel was putting this argument together, which was in the 1940s, that's when sociology was turning toward this more psychologistic, positivist, quantitative way of working. And it's those people who marginalized, you know, his uh, work afterwards. So, yeah, that's always been on my agenda, too. So you encountered um, him for the first time, uh, Garfinkel's work. You had uh, first encountered Garfinkel through uh, which of his works and how? what did you see in that um, that resonated with you in terms of uh, a focus on race? Okay, so uh, Fran Waxler had us reading parts of uh, studies and parts of Goffman's presentation of self. So if you take the Agnes chapter mm-hmm. and you take presentation of self, basically what you have is that a person, no matter what they actually are like or actually want to do, has to figure out how to use a common code to present themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and Agnes is confronted by this challenge because Agnes is transsexual. Agnes uh, does not fit the binary male-female mm-hmm. that the codes elaborate. And so Agnes has to figure this out. Um, so what Garfinkel is saying there is a couple of sort of radical, you know, you want to use the word deconstruction, deconstructing things that mm-hmm. um, by talking to Agnes and listening to Agnes and letting Agnes tell us what her dilemmas are, she is the key to open the door to figure out what the rest of us are doing. Now, the rest of sociology is interested in deviance as something that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they talk about uh, social control. They act as if there's some kind of a consensus that all of the rest of us have to maintain. Um, you know, from Durkheim already in 1893, we know there is no consensus that we can all maintain. That's the challenge of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not going to maintain a, a consensus. What we do is we develop these codes, rules, ways, ethnomethods for making the social facts and categories that, you know, we can recognize in our social world. Uh, but nobody knows they're doing it. So they're all taking it for granted all the time. And statisticians are counting these things as if they existed in the world and didn't have to be made. And then using the fact that they exist as predictors of things. But mm. if you if you peel it back a layer and you say, but people had to make those in the first place. And what are they using to make them? See, those are the questions nobody's asking. So what, what, what Garfinkel was telling us is that we can look at people who are marginalized, mm-hmm. who, who because of stigma uh, and exclusion face challenges that the rest of us don't face, and we'll figure out how social order is made. To me, that's the same message of Du Bois, right? That the excluded have double consciousness. They understand things. Mm-hmm. And the the great loss is that we marginalize those people because what they're saying is not exactly the same as the rest of us. And we say, oh, well, they're just not smart enough to understand it the way we do instead of recognizing, oh my God, they're telling us something that's so important. 
And if we look at the challenges they're facing and allow, uh, you know, the insights that get developed from facing those challenges to inform our theories and our, our research methods, then we're going to be doing something very different that won't be leaving people out. Yeah. I'm glad you bring up uh, Agnes. I, I think a lot of people will be familiar with uh, Garfinkel's Agnes study, and I think many people also um, know about his his first publication, um, Color Trouble. Uh, but something that you right. and uh, Kevin and Waverly wrote about that was that was new to me was Garfinkel's master's thesis on on courtrooms and how uh, race was used in the the deliberations and the proceedings, but then in the official accounts that got written up later, race um, got got erased uh, from yeah from those accounts as right. as uh, as you say a determining factor in 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 those in the outcome. So um, could you talk a little bit about uh, Garfinkel's uh, thesis? Yes, there are two uh, pieces of work. There's the actual thesis in 1942, and then Mm -hmm. there's a publication in Social Forces in 1949. The later one is informed by work he did in 1947 on categories where he worked with Jerome Bruner at Mm -hmm. uh, Harvard. So the 1949 uh, argument is a little more sophisticated in terms of category use. What the early one does and what and what it was intended to do mm-hmm. uh, was to look beneath, so to speak, the statistics that were being produced by courts um, be, because he, he was working with he was working with Odom and Johnson at um, North Carolina. Both of them were very well-known scholars of race. It's why he went to North Carolina. Um, and I believe it's why he was accepted. I don't know if you know the story, but no. he he lived in a small Jewish enclave in Newark. Uh, he'd gone to the university of uh, 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 there before it was accredited. It's now Rutgers, but mm-hmm. he knew he had to get out of that enclave to make it. And he had a professor at the university who told him, you know, what, what the... Um, kids who are going to Harvard and Columbia and Chicago do in the summer is they volunteer. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're rich, right, upper class, you know, white kids. So he knew of a Quaker uh, work camp in Georgia where these kids would be. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you know, if you can get yourself there, this is where you could meet the people, right, who, yeah. who are actually going to go, you know, to those top universities. So uh, Garfinkel hitchhiked from uh, yeah <laughs> i get to see it yeah he hitchhiked from you know from newark to georgia mm-hmm. and when i talked uh to his wife and and discovered that he was considered black in the south so really? he couldn't go to hotels uh there was no place for him to stay he also didn't have any money so i asked him you know where did you sleep Right. I mean, yeah, how... yeah, you can't just hitchhike in one day from Newark to Georgia and you got to eat and you got to sleep. He said, oh, well, you know, when when it got late at night and I came into a town, he said, I would walk up to the sheriff's office and knock on the door and ask if I could sleep in the jail. <laughs> so this 
this guy who you know who who had this theory that has us all uh-huh. at work this was an intrepid guy yeah. right? and apparently they led him to it he did a very <laughs> similar thing to get into north carolina he hitchhiked to odom's house from georgia mm-hmm. didn't call him no letter showed up just got, showed up cold yeah, yeah and somehow he got to his door you know i don't know if he was at home or at work but he said i knocked on odom's door he opened it i told him what i was there for and then he said odom said something like this so you are a newark jew who's come to the country looking to study with me i admit you <laughs> Right. So he's admitted to graduate school on the doorstep, you know, by uh, Odom. Uh, <laughs> and if only were if, if it were that easy, I mean, not easy, but yeah, if only we could do that today. Well, I mean, who would think of it? Right. You yeah. know, I mean, it, I mean, you could definitely see the, the sort of cast of mind, you know, the, the chutzpah that, right. you know, uh, maybe encouraged him or let him uh, right. formulate his breaching experiments. Chutzpah innocence, uh, 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 determination, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it's, it's a calm. It's not just chutzpah because he doesn't know the world. Mm. He's, he's been, he's been in an enclave. So now he's on a journey. Um, that's so interesting. So <laughs> <laughs> it was fun talking to him about this stuff. Yeah. So I, that was getting me to this line which is okay uh because he was working with odom and johnson and wanted to study race they knew that there was a lot of racism in the courtrooms but if you looked at the statistics uh you could see that the sentences that black and white men were getting looked about the same Mm. so so he had this problem to start with how is this possible because uh, everything everybody says, yeah. uh, you know, and, and you can see it and hear it, there's racism all over the place, so this shouldn't be the case. So what he right. did was there were 10 county courthouses in North Carolina. He went to every single one of them. Mm-hmm. He tracked every single case and he got all of the records. He sat in on all of the, the court proceedings and he's got this huge, you know, 400 page master thesis mm-hmm. with all kinds of slides and lots of, I mean, numbers and charts and so on. It's a kind of a statistical ethnomethodology that I have myself uh, with Jay Meehan done a couple of times where you use numbers to, again, I'm using this word deconstruct, to deconstruct where the statistics other people are using actually come from. Mm -hmm. And so there is a way after you figure out what people are doing to create the appearances of things, Mm -hmm. there is a way of counting how often they're doing that thing that creates this false appearance, right? Mm -hmm. What, What you discover, you know, if you look beneath the numbers is this kind of thing. And that's mm-hmm. what Garfinkel was doing is, okay, you know, let, let's see what's really going on. And what he discovered was that in the courtroom, everybody mm-hmm. was talking in terms of race and there were uh, racialized, what would later get called 
category bound activity uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, expectations, right? So, you know, black men were supposed to know their place, try mm-hmm. to do things to other black men that white people would approve of. Mm-hmm. So when a good black man who knew his place killed a black man who didn't know his place, he could be rewarded for doing that with a light sentence. If a a white guy killed a black man who did not know his place, again, he would get a lenient sentence. So, um, and when a white man killed a good white man, he Mm -hmm. would get punished because Mm -hmm. good white men had high, high worth no matter who killed them. You know, so the very few cases where you could see that they might be getting treated differently were so few because crime Mm -hmm. is within race that all of the statistics made it look like something that was happening that actually wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And he he was really being urgent about this Mm -hmm. because he finished this in 42 and the ASA had already started in 39 and 40 talking about don't do any more studies of interaction or ethnography. Let's make it all statistical. It's more efficient and it's quicker and it's better and it's more mm-hmm. scientific. And he's trying to say, wait a minute, you're going to make a huge mistake if mm-hmm. you do that. One of the things you would leave out is racism, right? You know, sexism and all kinds of other stuff. Now, people have found some ways of you know, measuring it statistically, but they've had to be very creative and clever to do it because if you, if you just take the secondary data sets, uh, they're all being monitored by the federal government since 1964, and every organization knows how to mm-hmm. balance its yeah. books so they don't look like they know what yeah, they're doing. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say this is the a nice you know early example of a very standard sort of ethnomethodological kind of argument. Yeah, for, and that's what the reasons for bad official accounts is about too, right? Yeah, that's right. It's there right from the beginning. You know, it's um, there were people who said to him because he complained about this. They said it's ethnomethodology right from the beginning. I can see you doing it with color trouble, mm-hmm. and he would get angry and he would say, "Well, no, it's not all there from the beginning." Uh, of course, they didn't mean it was all there. What they meant was, you know, in Color Trouble, he is talking about accounts and how the acceptability of certain counts and the inacceptability mm-hmm. of other counts shape the way uh, an encounter is going to be described. And again, that would shape the, you know, the statistics, right, that would come out. And um, so that part of it, he is doing right from the beginning. I think I think that really nicely ties into the volume which you uh, have entitled "Black Lives Matter: Ethnomethodological and Conversation, Analytic Studies of Race and Systemic Racism in Everyday Interaction." Um, and from the introduction, which is very nice, uh, something that I get from that is this focus on accounts. Um, and so, in color trouble, um, we can see how you know d- differing accounts about the validity of black people's understanding of their own worth and lives and significance, how those, you know, come up against dominant white attitudes and accounts for uh, black people's actions. And so how that very depressingly, that still resonates today in having to say things like Black Lives Matter and that being the account um, that unearths this tacit understanding of black lives not mattering and them being um, 
in, in American society, at least a sort of permanent right. uh, underclass. Yeah. Um, even in Color Trouble, one of the points he's making is that without the complicity of everybody being willing to pretend that Jim Crow is not happening, Jim Crow doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And he says one of the things that the bus driver is angriest about is that it's been exposed to the light of day. He can't mm -hmm. just quietly, in an ordinary way, go about the business of being racist. Mm -hmm. Now it's in his face. Now he has to get the police to mm -hmm. do it. And he spends the end of that article talking about how the bus driver is going to engage in uh, uh, some remedial work mm -hmm. with the remaining Black people on the bus to restore the veneer of Jim Crow. And that he and the other white passengers are going to be uneasy until they feel that they've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Do you mind uh, talking a little bit about how the volume came together? Did you propose this to Taylor and Francis or did uh, they approach uh, one of you? Um, uh, yeah, wanting what, to put... what, mm -hmm. ha what happened was uh, June 10th and 11th, the section was sending out emails about Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. uh, as co-chair of the section, I had written a supporting statement and I sent it out over the listserv. Mm -hmm. And the editors at Taylor and Francis and Rutledge, Neil Jenkins, Andrew Carlin and Neil Jordan, they got that. And so they got back to me. So in their email, they said, mm -hmm. In response to your call for action by the EMCA section of the ASA, mm -hmm. they wanted to propose this uh, Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. ebook, which would be free and it would be a contribution by Taylor and Francis and Rutledge to the Black Lives uh, Matter um, mission. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to get it done quickly so that it would be out during the period when protests and interest in Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter are, are happening. Mm -hmm. So basically the criteria were anything that uh, Rutledge or Taylor and Francis owned the uh, copyright to. I see. We were able to identify 14 and all the things that we identified and could not use are in the bibliography which is quite long. There are lots and lots oh, of pieces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to it. Are there any particular pieces that you would like to, to highlight or um, other pieces that you maybe thought would have been a perfect thing to include, but were unable to because they weren't Rutledge or Taylor and Francis? Um, when, I, when I think of the ebook, I think about what I learned, mm -hmm. you know, about the pieces I didn't know putting it together. Uh, Waverly and I were working on the ethnomethodology part more, and mm -hmm. Kevin Whitehead was working on the CA part more. And the the studies are in the general way of unpacking how it is that everybody is unknowingly, unwittingly participating in doing racism all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all the studies are looking at that. The ethnomethodological studies have more the character of Garfinkel's master's thesis. So, for instance, Jay Mean's study that we couldn't include was uh, looking at how police surveillance works and trying to figure out 
how it is that, you know, they're surveilling so many more black people than white people. And so he was collecting data from lots of different points. He was doing studies of what can a police officer see when they're driving along the street and Hmm. how many black drivers are there really. So they would go out and spend eight hours driving, you know, with with a group that were trying to spot how many black drivers they were seeing. And well, if there are only, you know, one out of every 500 drivers on this street is black, but black drivers are being stopped 10 times more often than white drivers, they must be stopping every black driver they see. Right. So, so there are sort of practical common sense, what people can see and what they must be doing, given what you figure out that way. And those are quite different from the, mm-hmm. the studies of how, you know, membership categories are working, but they're both getting at the same thing. Right. So it was really fun putting this together to see how, how these things work together. Mm-hmm. Ken Lieberman, mm-hmm. we, we have a, a, a chapter from his study of Australian Aboriginal etiquette and expectations that get taken advantage of by colonial conquerors. It's kind of like in Afghanistan, there's an imperative. It's a hospitality imperative. You're not a human being if you violate that hospitality imperative. No. And so Westerners take advantage. Of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, so so it it becomes very rich in looking at this problem in a lot of different ways. That's really interesting. Uh, just reading the the descriptions of all the chapters that you've been able to include, it really it really does span, you know, not just black white, but also Asian uh, and uh, Aboriginal Australian communities as well, and so not just uh, constrained to an American context. Right. But after re- reviewing all of these studies and seeing the kind of diversity of work being done in EMCA on race and racism, right. what sort of things uh, do you think EMCA as a discipline has to uniquely contribute, uh, what does it have to offer in terms of our methods or, or the ways we look at things uh, to, to the study of, uh, of race? Um, over the last probably five years in particular, many young Black scholars have gotten in touch with me, have mm-hmm. submitted papers, and they're not trained in ethnomethodology or CA. So what's happening is it's, uh, it's for you. Uh, you know, it's Foucault, hmm. and they're talking about things like problems building up trust, right? You know, trying to hook that into the trust argument. I think, I think the the challenge is that we have a, a way of looking at you know how society works and what goes wrong that's unique, right. and it requires training. Right. You can't really use it if you don't understand how it works. And so when young scholars, black or white, get the idea that, oh, this is a way of looking at race, you can't just start talking about race because what we're doing is saying all of the taken for granted normal, quote unquote, ways that people in society and people in social theory have of talking about race, these are the social constructions of the white majority. Mm-hmm. We need to get beneath that. We're not going to discover anything by beginning there. Hmm. 
Um, and so we, we have a very difficult task because you have to convince people that we can get you to a unique level of study, but it will require some investment in new uh, research technologies, so to speak. When I, when I was at Wayne State University and I had lots of graduate students, I would say, you have a choice. Mm -hmm. You can use you know, the mainstream methods and theories mm -hmm. And you will simply be uh, reinforcing the status quo. Now, it doesn't matter what your intention is. That's what you're going to be doing because you'll be working with, you know, the these methods. The, yeah, you'll be working with the numbers they give you. You won't be able to interrogate the categories you're using, and <laughs> you know, so so there's a, a hidden work of making racism there that will be very difficult for you to penetrate. Um, Waverly Duck has been talking about interaction orders as a way of bridging very technical ethnomethological work and ethnography, for instance, mm -hmm. to say, yes, you could be doing ethnography, but you need to be looking at how the people who are there are constructing their local interaction order. And mm -hmm. it focuses people differently and they begin to do things more ethnomethologically. I still think it requires you know, some some more uh, technical training, but there's beginning to be an interest because people can see that we're getting at stuff. And mm -hmm. the problem is people teaching it in places where people who are interested in it, you know, would study it and uh, we've been marginalized a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something that I heard in, in your response is that it's the, you know, the, the strength is our self-same sort of weakness right. and that the methods, the history, the techniques, mm -hmm. right. the mentality and, and way of looking at things, it offers uh, to some people yeah. a, an impediment to starting up this kinds of study. Um, and so I was wondering from your perspective, you know, when, when people say, oh, I don't want to do MCA or, uh, or people who would otherwise, otherwise be attracted to uh, AMCA methods, but because of their interest in race and because of the reputation that we have for not looking or yeah. or not even caring about things like gender and race and power, um, it turns it turns students away. Um, you know, how do we attract scholars? How do we keep these uh, students interested? And how do we ba basically change our perhaps pedagogies and data sessions and things like that? I would be really interested in um, hearing any of your thoughts uh, on what should we be doing differently and how we teach or, or how we um, mentor students and um, do other sorts of outreach things to you know, make this, um, you know, show that we have a longstanding interest in this right. uh, historically, as you've right. nicely shown, but also that we have the right sorts of tools to get at yeah. it in, in a way that's, that's meaningful. Right. Um, I have always thought that it was possible to explain why you could get at things like race and inequality better with ethnomethodology. I've always tried to do it from the beginning. Um, you know, in my conversation with Garfinkel, he understood that that's what I was trying to do. When I talked with Shegloff about this, he said that the reason they weren't doing that was because they were so marginalized, nobody was going to listen. Mm -hmm. He would say, Hardy and I used to talk and we decided that if we tried to convince people, they would never listen and we wouldn't get the work done. 
Mm-hmm. So what we needed to do was lay down a body of work and later people would realize what it was good for. Mm-hmm. And I said to Manny, that's fine. You could do that. I'm going to start from the beginning trying to explain to people what it's good for. Mm-hmm. And the work I have done on Durkheim and on Du Bois, mm-hmm. trying to show that there is a lineage there. It's a strong lineage. It's, you know, the Wittgensteinian side of sociology is very strong through the 20s and 30s, and they kill it during World War II. And what we have now is nowhere near as good as what we could have. But now the story I'm telling, the one I think is the true compelling history of uh, sociology, is that Garfinkel was basically working out of this lineage that positivistic mainstream thinkers had tried to kill off. And it's not just the best way of looking at race, but it's the only way of understanding what's happening in modernity. Mm-hmm. Most uh, sociologists treat social practices of modernity as if they're the same as social practices in, you know, other kinds of societies. Mm-hmm. And what I see Durkheim arguing is that the practices people use in societies that are not diverse, that don't have a lot of communication across groups, where where you do have a consensus... Um, those societies uh, are regulated differently. Um, they don't tolerate deviance. They do a lot of boundary maintaining things to preserve consensus. Hmm. In diverse societies where occupations specialize and differentiate and you get lots of different communities of people. You can't have a consensus Hmm. anymore. What Durkheim is arguing is that different kind of a practice develops. He identifies them with sciences and uh, specialized occupations, but he calls them self-regulating. He says that they require cooperation, reciprocity, equality, justice. There's something about the moment-to-moment cooperation in a situated practice that doesn't care who its people is, right? Mm -hmm. That everybody who walks onto that scene is going to have, are going to have to do whatever they do as a display of that practice. Mm -hmm. That that's different from displaying that you belong to a group. And I think when you look at something like what's happening in the United States today, which the pundits like to call a culture war, right? Between the people who love Confederate monuments and who love Trump and, you know, who, who fundamentally are trying to preserve a, uh, a racist consensus and, mm-hmm. you know, whoever they would say the rest of us are, you know, and they call it a culture war. And so I've written quite a few pieces over the last six months about how if you begin with Durkheim, you could understand this differently. This is not a culture war. This is a war between two different ways of making culture. Mm -hmm. And the self-regulating kind does destroy consensus, but Mm -hmm. we don't need consensus anymore. So why do consensus groups worry about 
having urban self-regulators around them. Well, because we don't care about their consensus and mm -hmm. they don't have anything without their consensus. So if they give up their racism, their culture is gone because it's based on racism. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a key to answering this question. What could you get at if you look at it ethnologically, mm -hmm. right? Well, you could begin to talk about what's happening in modern society in an intelligent way, mm -hmm. instead of just talking about culture wars as if these were both plausible scenarios, because what Durkheim is saying is a consensus won't work in a modern social context. You just won't, it has to go. And what he said was, this is why he wrote about moral education, is you have to educate people to understand mm -hmm. that things are gonna work differently in modernity. And I think that's what ethnomethodology does. We begin to understand how things work in modernity. Hmm. And Rose, thank you very much. I, I wish we could talk, this, talk about this. Uh... For much longer. I'm really looking forward to the volume. So uh, again, thank you for having this uh, conversation with me. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, we could go on talking forever, but then you'd have a real editing job. <laughs>